Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. On this episode, you'll be hearing from three of Hollywood's next generation. They've each demanded and kept our attention during a seemingly never-ending year of distraction. Jonathan Majors, Taylor Page, and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II are more than talented friends and loving colleagues. They're also the budding future of cinema. My first interview is with Jonathan Majors, who has made good use of his time since he graduated from the Yale School of Drama. This year in particular, we've seen his star shine bright. It started with Spike Lee's To Five Bloods, where he played opposite Delroy Lindo. And his lead role in HBO sci-fi series, Lovecraft Country, has added to the excitement and enthusiasm for what's next. It's so funny. And then, of course, you're in your red beanie. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just attached to it. I like it. it uh, I'm a bicyclist and it allows me to be seen when I'm riding bright red beanie on a black man speeding by you. I, I would prefer if that were a bright red helmet, Jonathan, as I hate to be a mom here, but <laughs> as would everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am thrilled to talk to you. So thank you so much for making the time. Oh, yes, ma'am. It's crazy what's happened in your life in such a short amount of time is is extraordinary. From graduating from school to how prolific you've been and the impact of the roles that you have had on the small screen and the large screen in such a short amount of time. I'm so happy to talk to you. Anyway, all right. So where am I finding you in the world right now, Jonathan, or Jay, however you want me to call you? <laughs> I would say let's try Jay. I'm not, I've never been addressed by Jay on a podcast before. Okay. Um, <laughs> we can have a first. Uh, this is the, this is it. Well, you, you, you know, you, you were my first like proper interview um, at Sundance, uh, but you find me in Savannah, Georgia. I am, ha- we are halfway through a picture called Devotion, which is, which is going pretty great. War film, Korean war film, uh, following these guys, Jesse Brown and Tom Budner. And we're, uh, we're getting it done. A lot of airplanes, mm. a lot of flying. Well, I'm going to talk to you about another war film, Mm -hmm. The Five Bloods, which deals with the black soldiers experience in Vietnam and the Mm -hmm. aftermath of that. So how is that as a as an actor to go back and relive your grandfather's reality? Because I know you guys went, you know, you went to Vietnam and you were filming and you're in that psyche. Obviously, you're playing the son of Delroy, who who has experienced that and your relationship is, is strained because of the, his experience in the war. Yes, ma'am. So as an actor, just walk me through that, getting one, first of all, getting into character and also bringing that history with you as a human to that role and that country. David, the role I, the role I was lucky enough to play is interesting because what David did is he gave me the opportunity to fully understand in a way um, the process of what my ancestors were going through, right? What my literal grandfathers went through, which is so awesome. And I, I think this is, I don't think Spike knew that I had a, a familial connection to it when we got, when we started. 
But it was so deep because what David was going through was the same thing I was going through. That as I began to pay attention to Delroy and then Paul, I began to understand even more who my grandfather was, therefore who my mother is, therefore who my biological father is, after seeing the turmoil and the trials and tribulations that this man had to experience in order to survive and get back home, right, to then make, you know, my family. And the psychological drama of that was was a lot of my homework. And all the all the fellas, all the men, all the soldiers were important in that. But I would say for David and for me, my greatest connection was that of Delroy Lindo's character, Paul. So watching him and his mannerisms, the fact that you're the son of this man, and David's entire mission in the film is cloaked in this idea of the treasure hunt. But the, the fact of the matter is, he is trying to understand who his father is. Mm. Well, I want I want to take you back. You you touched on a couple of things to the beginning, and you've talked a little bit about this of of being kind of a punky kid, getting lost a little bit in the shuffle of mm. school, and having some awakenings of your own at a, at a young age. But what was that moment for you that you realized you'd pushed it far enough and you had to redirect yourself? Wow, um, you know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Because what I'm going to say, I've never said before. I was in the middle of, I think I was on my seventh month of being outside of my my mother's house. And I'd been living in my car for a bit. And I just moved into my uncle's house, who just lived a few towns over. And the sports had kind of fallen away. I, 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 was, I was playing ball. I was playing basketball at the point at that time. And uh, the shit was just really bad. But I was doing great. Like, I was working at Olive Garden. I was eating, you know, I had just gotten kicked out of one school. And this is after already being in, in some trouble, you know, so it was kind of like it's second time, second go around. And this time there's real consequences because you're not 13, 14 anymore. Like at that point, I was I was in my senior year, you know, barely about to graduate due to truancy and all types of all type of shit. And um, I was at my uncle's house and I just decided to move in. And. I got, in, I got into the room that he was giving me, and I was living with my little cousin. And I really thought about, like, man, you really gunned it, man. Like, like you fucked this thing bad, <laughs> you know? Like, like you're, you're not going to graduate. And I just broke down in there. I just broke down because I felt so lucky, actually, that I was still at it, you know? And I still had some type of vitality, you know, that it, 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 I, I hadn't been broken by it though i was i was low as i could possibly get and i felt my uh my uncle in the doorway he never said anything to me about it but i know he watched it and i'm just a crying mess on the ground and um after that i can i can firmly say there was no more interaction with the law no more uh truancy i did what i had to do to get everything straight it, it gave me a sense of n- nothing matters unless it matters you know i'm a hot-blooded human being you know, and I'll burn some down in a minute, you know, and, and I know I can survive afterwards. And then because of that destruction, I know that's in me, the beauty of creation kind of becomes the, the driving force and the balancing for, for you know, lack of a better word, peace and, and purpose. Mm. And 
for you getting into North Carolina School of the Arts, which is one of the most prestigious, it's, I think, the oldest arts college in America, right? That obviously was a defining moment for you uh, as an actor. But what was it that made you want to pursue a further degree and to go to Yale? So I was in my third year at NCSA. It's a four-year program. And we were doing, we was, of course, it's an intensive day and it's, you know, 11 o'clock at night and you just start rehearsal at 11 o'clock. And me and my buddy, my best buddy at the time, were rehearsing this piece, Stephen Alley Gurgis play, actually, uh, Jesus Hop the A Train. And I, I hit a gear and I went, oh, shit. Wow. And I felt it. And my, my buddy felt it, who was my classmate, and had been with me, you know, since we were 18-year-old kids. And after that rehearsal, now 2 o'clock in the morning, we're, we're walking back uh, to the dormitory. And I thought, well, if, that, if that's possible, that's the only way to do it, isn't it? And he goes, yeah. And so I go, okay, cool. So then I thought, well, I got to keep doing the training part. And late, later that night, I guess 3 o'clock in the morning, I got in bed and I Googled, what is the best drama program for grownups? And uh, Yale School of Drama was the number one. And, and at that point, I was, I was kind of fixated on, you know, leave no doubt. You know, like, I'm going for that. Yeah, then you've been on a speeding train. So were you at Yale with Yaya at all? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yao was there. Yao's a year above me. I mean, he's a big talent uh, and always has been. And since I've known him. And, and, and it's funny, he's probably the only actor from YSD. Only guy, shit, probably the only actor that I that I would call a buddy. You know, a real friend, you know, someone where we we haven't spoken in a while, but I'll hit him and, and, and if we're in the same town, we hang out. And Yah said something to me, um, with how intimate our, our friendship began. He was the monitor for the the moderator for the room that I was going into for my callback. And you know, of course it's you know, it's Yale, it's this this Ivy League thing, and there's a lot of you know, you're you're still another, you know, young black kid looking at another young black kid. And um you know, I say, well, you know, tell me, man, what, what, what's it like? What, you know, he says, just flesh and blood, bro. You know, just bring flesh and blood. And I thought, well, it's pretty much all I got, you know, and this Shakespeare piece I'm going to do for him. You know, <laughs> he got the get down. Um, he was auditioning for the get down while he was in school, graduated, and then went and did it. And um, my situation was, was kind of similar, except mine was a bit earlier. And so I, I was uh, fortunate enough to leave the school and do my work remote, and then come back, graduate, present the work. And Have you seen him do. in Chicago 7? <laughs> uh, the funny thing about that, I, I was cast as Bobby Seale first. No yeah. way. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got caught up in Lovecraft. And, um, and of course, you know, that I'm, I'm so happy that he, 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 he was the one to step into it because um, he's wicked. He's absolutely gorgeous in it. Really, really bring some nuance to it that um, I think is needed for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just he just eats it a lot. Uh, quite proud of him. Yeah, he's outstanding in it. He really is. So yeah. you have to kind of believe that. I I think those things happen for a reason. And oh yeah, you know you're doing what you're doing, and he stepped in there, and now he's doing what he's doing. Um, That's right. The other That's thing right. I wanted to talk to you about because the other um, actress I'm going to be talking to is Taylor Page, and you guys work together too on White Boy Rick. Good. And you also at Yale, which I found so interesting. I just read this uh, 
produced in one year all 10 of the Pittsburgh series of August Wilson, which is extraordinary, first of all. And I would have loved to have seen that, sadly. Uh, not not to... Yeah, not yeah, 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 I played a few. Did he? Oh, so yeah, great. Yeah, I played <laughs> So did you have you have you seen uh, Ma Rainey and have you seen Taylor and who I think is terrific? Well, Ma Rainey's full circle, right? Because the reason I I had the idea it, it wasn't my idea. I had just got done doing three of the ten Century Cycle plays with Ruben Santiago Hudson, who was I, I would say my mentor and, and godfather, and I just wrapped that when I started Yale. We had just finished. Um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I was playing Sylvester. And we finished it. I punched him in the arm as hard as I could. And I jumped in the car and I got on the Metro North and went to Yale. And three days later at Yale, we're having this get together. I said, hey, this is what we're going to do. I know exactly how to do it. You know? And so for Taylor Page to then be in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that Reuben uh, adapted, Reuben Satya Hudson adapted, I guess we share their full names, that uh, that, that he adapted is completely full circle. And I have seen her in it, uh, Dusty May. And she's, she, I mean, she's, she's pitch perfect. If you, if you watch, if you watch Taylor, she has this way of being very, very quiet. Like when you watch her, it's, it's as if she's radiating heat. She's like an oven, you know, you, it's like, what, what is that? So you, you can always feel her presence in that film, in that particular film. And um, I also know from working with her on White Boy Rick that she has a certain amount of curiosity as an actress and really finds a way to kind of illuminate the the underbelly of of the character that she's portraying. Yeah, you can't you can't take her your eyes off of her. I, I find it's like right. that heat, even even when you're passively watching, you're watching right. her. Right. your eyes just immediately gravitate towards her, even right. if she's not speaking right. or moving. You're kind of like, who's that? It is. It is. There's I something like that. Go- there's always something going on, mm-hmm. you know, and she's just floating a little bit. I think that's why I think that's why it's like some actors have this ability to be very stoic and still. But then there's actors that do this kind of um, floaty thing where they're not really moving, but they're floating. So, as you say, the eye is going to them. You know, it's just why aren't you being still? But you are being still. But there's this vibration coming off of them. You know, she, she she has that. Jay, I love that I was one of your first official interviews, if not the official interview. And I like catching up with you a couple of years later. And yes, I really sir. look forward to continuing to talk to you along your, your path of uh, it's been so fun to watch. And more than anything, I just see... On the outside, it's been great to see you live up to your potential. And there's so much more to come. Break my heart. Thank you. All right. Next time, Red Beanie, keep it on. Maybe a helmet. I might get one custom made for you just so then you'd have to wear it. Could you get beanie fabric on the outside of the helmet? For sure. Of course you could. (laughs) (laughs) Be well. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The first time I met Jonathan Majors was at Sundance, and it was right after his film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It was the first time the film was shown to an audience, and it happened to be in the biggest theater at Sundance called The Eccles, about 1,200 seats. 
and he had gotten a standing ovation and he left that standing ovation to come to my interview suite. And I was luckily enough for me, I was the first person to interview him. And it was just so special because just to see an actor's joy and to be in a room where all these people are watching your film and responding so positively. And of course, we all know the the film went on to to get rave reviews and essentially launched his career. And what I found refreshing in, in talking to him again was how much the same he is. He's just so pure of heart and talent and just devoted to the craft and to the art of making movies. So it was kind of thrilling for me that even though it's only been two years, a lot can happen in two years is certainly when you get um, so much attention and you're such a young talent. So I, I was very impressed by him and I continue to be. And, and he was wearing the red hat, uh, the little red beanie that he's very attached to because he rides a bike all over Manhattan, which I'm not so thrilled about, but he was wearing that red hat in Sundance as well. So even that was consistent. Our next guest is one whose melodic name has been buzzing for quite some time. Another Yale School of Drama graduate, Yaya was a year ahead of Jonathan before getting his first break on Netflix with Baz Luhrmann's The Get Down. He followed that with DC's Black Manta, HBO's Watchmen, and his unforgettable 2020 performance as Bobby Seale in Chicago 7. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, continues to dazzle on screen, and there's certainly more razzle for the flair. Now, Yaya, you're from Oakland, and so is Bobby Seale. Tell me what you knew about him before taking this part, and also what it meant as you went along to be playing him. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I uh, did grow, uh, 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 grow up in Oakland. Um, I knew that Bobby Seale was uh, one of the co-founder members of the Black Panther Party. I lived in and grew up in West Oakland, particularly, uh, which is the area that the Black uh, Panthers were uh, founded in. And, you know, for me, this was, you know, a, a chance to tell sort of a hometown story or, or the story of, 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 of what I consider to be a hometown hero. Um, I didn't know much about the trial of the Chicago 7 specifically, um, or really at all, actually. But I did know that at some point, Bobby Seale did experience the uh, the horrific brutalization, you know, that that that, that went into him being uh, bound and gagged in in court. But I did not uh, have the awareness that that took place in this in, in this particular trial. So that that was a learning experience, you know, uh, for me as well. When you first read the script, what was it like to first of all read an Aaron Sorkin script, which is infamous in its own right, but particularly all those courtroom scenes. Yeah, well, you know, I opened up the script and, you know, the script was had to be something like 156 pages or something like that. And it just felt like a mistake. I'd never gotten a script that long, you know, then I said, well, how how are you going to fit this, fit all of this script into a movie? And then I started reading. And, uh, you know, 30 minutes into it, I'm, I'm 40 and 50, page, 50 pages into the script. And I said, oh, OK, this is how, you know, because the script is really uh, musical. You know, he writes the way that people talk. It's not gratuitous. It's trim. Uh, it's fast. It's sometimes it's slow. But 
it's very it's very natural. So it's it, you know the script was easy to get lost into it. Right, and and Aaron has said repeatedly that this isn't a biopic. This is a movie, obviously about this trial, and he uses the transcripts from the actual courtroom. But in terms of preparation, obviously, as an actor, when you're not doing a biopic, you're not making yourself look exactly like that character or the voice or the cadence and stuff. What did you want to make sure to capture? Yeah, I wanted to make sure to capture Bobby's sense of dignity. I wanted him to be seen as a human, as a fully fleshed out uh, human being who had the right to uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You know, uh, this this was a film that showed a, showed Bobby uh, as in a situation where his human rights, his basic rights, his rights as uh, granted by the Constitution of the United States were being threatened and taken away, and that was in jeopardy. You know, the way that I work as an actor is, is, is I say, well, a good every good story is about is is a love story. And that love story is about a character who finds something, an idea or a person or a quality. They find something that they love. And over the course of that story, if it's a good story, the events of that story is going to try to take it away from them. And it's up to that character to defend that idea or to defend that thing that they love. And so in this case, Bobby was protecting his humanity. He was protecting his 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 manhood, his humanness, his rights to to be a black man in America, um, and 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 to be afforded all the rights that the Constitution says comes with that. And so I set out to protect uh, those those values in this film. Well, I, I talked to Aaron a little bit about this too is when we first meet Bobby Seale, he's loose, he's free, he's commanding. You're walking through the office talking about why you're going to Chicago just for four hours. And we see this individual, and I realize later that's the only time we actually see Bobby Seale free. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the film, we see him, you know, he has to, he spends the time in jail. He's not free on, on bail. He's in the courtroom later, as you said, bound and gagged. Talk to me a little bit about that process of introducing him and having that energy and still keeping that energy when you're seated. Mm-hmm. You know, Bobby Seale as a person, is very charismatic. He loves talking, loves to hear himself talk, I believe. Uh, he loves the fact that he's educated and he loves to tell you about the things that he know, that he knows. And he loves his uh, his uh, his smile and his his energy. And he loves to have an effect on the world and on the room. So Bobby loves an audience, you know. And so when he was in the courtroom, he had an audience as well. So when he spoke up, he was speaking up for his own constitutional rights and to defend his rights. But he was also speaking up because he knew that he had an audience and that that feeds his own self. I think that feeds the ego. But it's also as someone who's politically intelligent, you know, in the way that he was, he knew that that he had to capitalize on the opportunities to get, to, you know, to get the messaging across. E- even so much, I would go as far to say, and this is, you know, I, I learned this from from uh, from uh, Bobby and, and not from my own self. But you know, even even to to, to the point of goading the judge into you know, almost daring the judge to, to, to give me your worst, do your worst, 
because I'm in the right here. So I'm demanding, I'm demanding that you change my situation, that you alter my situation. And so much so that, that, that the judge lashed out violently and revealed himself to be the violent, extreme bigot, you know, that, that he was the person that who was not uh, fit for the power that he had. So, you know, he, he was larger than life and he was charismatic. And, and I think um, his, his, his behavior in the courtroom was, was a tool and, it, and you know, and it was a show, but it, but it also goes back to the, to, you know, my, my goal, which is to, although he was bound, although he was in chains, he was always free mentally, you know, and, and no one could take away the humanity. It is striking the the parallels to 1968 to 2020. You, you, it's undeniable, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in terms of the protests and the police brutality. What do you hope audiences take away from this film or what they're thinking about when they see that credit scroll? Well, um, well, in the film, I hope that they see themselves. I hope that, that, that they see an opportunity to change and to get involved and to find, find their role. I hope that, uh, that audiences say, wow, you know, this took place in 1968, but it feels like it could be taking place right now. And what are we going to do about it? You know, what are we going to do about about right now? I hope that people get out and vote. I hope that it, it, it spurs conversation and, and that it erases complacency. You know, that I hope that it, it lets everyone know, as you said, that these were people from all walks of life who were not supernatural people, who were extraordinary, uh, or the, the things that were extraordinary about them were was their courage and their willingness to to attempt to make change. And that's that's really all you can ask a person is to is to make is to make the attempt, you know, and I think if enough people make the attempt, then then you start to get a sense of direction and then you start to get courage. And then, you you know, the group starts to get larger and louder and we can demand d- demand the world that that we envision, you know. So th- those are some of some of my hopes uh, for this film. For me, it was such uh, a standout seeing you in this part and it really was the heart and soul of the film so thanks for taking the time i look forward to talking to you at some point in length about all of it and more but um thanks a lot yeah yeah all the best thank you very very much to hear more from yaya listen to the official trial of the chicago 7 podcast You know, Chicago 7 has been one of those stories, one of those parts of American history that so many filmmakers have tried to crack. And it's a really, really challenging story to bring to the screen because there's so many moving parts about what was happening at that time in 1968 and all the different people that were brought together to protest the end of the Vietnam War, actually just to protest that we were in the Vietnam War, which then, as we know, all of that protesting helped to actually end the Vietnam War. But one of the things that I was just did not expect and was blown away by literally just left speechless. I don't think I even took a breath for nearly a minute was watching Yaya as Bobby Seale and come out at that pivotal point in the trial bound and gagged. And 
just to see the this powerful man and this actor. I mean, he did such, he just embodied Bobby. And he had all of this action and strength in his stillness. Even though he wasn't moving, there was so much power behind it. And even talking about it right now, I get the chills. That was the biggest lasting emotional impact for me in, in watching the movie. Taylor Page is such a discovery as Dussie May, the love interest of both Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman and George C. Wolfe's spectacular Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. As her friend and former White Boy Rick co-star, Jonathan Majors articulated perfectly, she really finds a way to illuminate the underbelly of any character she's playing. Now leading up to the highly anticipated premiere of Zola, her first feature film lead, she continues to woo with mystery, skill, and charmed gratitude. So, Taylor Page, it is so nice to meet you. <laughs> so nice to meet you. So, talk to me a little bit. Where am I finding you uh, today on this lovely Friday? Today on this lovely Friday, I am home in my studio in um, the Arts District downtown. I'm excited to talk to you. I have a fitting after this for a new movie. So I'm just feeling very thankful to be breathing. I've got 10 fingers, 10 toes, you know, all is well for the most part. I feel you on that. So (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you because... One, I just think you're wildly talented. And I, I remember the first time I saw you was in White Boy Me Rick. Oh. So I was like, wow, you're just you're you have such a presence on screen. And obviously in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, for you, I can't imagine like how great that must have felt to get that part, right? You play Dusty oh. May, you're opposite yeah. Viola and Chadwick. <laughs> Bozeman and directed by George C. Wolf in a play by August Wilson. <laughs> Woo! Yes, I know all of them. And you shine, you shine in that role. So, so tell me about what for for you, Taylor. What spoke to you about playing Dussie May? That, mm. that do you think made you get this part? I, well, I mean, I regard August Wilson as a prophet in a sense. You know, I think Dessie, though people, you know, might find her um, silly or like a, an opportunist, I actually thought I found the humanity in her. The spirit of Dessie is, is the same as all of them. Like, you know, she's, she's also trying to, I think that she's like, if I swing my hips this way, if I say it this way, maybe I can do the introduction for the song or maybe I can also perform i think it's like survival and i just loved that all of the characters were connected and that they were like looking for some kind of window to freedom some kind of certainty or a desire to be seen and i felt like dusty saw levy dusty saw ma and also like just to like me taylor i just felt like what better way to expand what better way for my soul to expand to learn from someone like Viola and Chadwick and Denzel and George and Coleman and Glenn. And I mean, it's just every person I worked with is a for like I was being taken higher, you know, and I was like being called to rise to the occasion. And I just, 
preparing was just praying for me. It was like, it's all a prayer. Mm. That's what I loved about this character, she brought you in between both of these worlds, the one between Ma and the one between Levy, the struggle of making it, and then also being attached to something bigger, yeah. like Ma Rainey, and being at the whim of that control. I found her to be really quite compelling, and also just being a bisexual <laughs> woman in that era, yeah. like and yeah. aligning yourself with such a powerful, but yet kind of just that overwhelming force of Ma Rainey, her way or no way, <laughs> you know, the right, power, the right. gift, the gift of that voice was her power. Well, let's, let's just talk about how, how was it going toe to toe with Viola? It's actually like, she's actually the fantasy you, like we all, you know, she's obviously like a national treasure. And to be honest, she's like, everything and more like she's a comedian she's serious she's thoughtful she's intentional she's caring she remembers things that you forgot you shared with her like she's just the woman you want to be and also like the woman you want to be your friend you know like and I just never I never ever 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 for one moment felt like I didn't deserve to be there and Mm -hmm the way it felt was just different than anything I've ever wrapped. But I remember at the end, I, I emailed George just, you know, thanking him for letting me play and allowing me to find it. And, and he, and he was like, you thank me for, for playing, but like, that's innately in you, you know, and like, you have to protect that at all costs, especially in that crazy LA place you live in. And Hmm. it sounds very elementary, but I just feel lucky Mm-hmm. I had to have thought something was possible if I could be here now. But at times I was like, you know, ready to give up. I've had so many odd jobs. I even, I PA'd on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and pre-production. I worked at a weed dispensary. I cleaned toilets. I've nannied. I've like, I've done so many strange things that have been really all curriculum to being, I think, a better soul, which informs being a more available artist. I'm not going to say better because I'm not quite where I want to be, but I think, I don't think you ever get it done or finished. So I loved that my first and only opportunity to work with Chadwick, who is just, just brilliant. And like, I think bowed out in his greatest role yet was, I felt so incredibly like honored that our souls had it be that way. And that it was like, you know, he's, he has a lot of heavy lifting in this movie and this play. And yet, you know, all of my scenes with him are, are playing are, mm-hmm. you know, are their possibility is if this glaring heavy atmosphere out there and also in here in this room aren't real, like for a minute, it's almost like they're like, so what would it be like if we were to float on out of here and just, you know, actually have a, access to like living however we wanted what would that look like Mm -hmm. what do you think you'll carry on in in your career in terms of your work that you absorb through Chadwick and through Viola oh man I feel like that's it's like what won't I I think Hmm. with Viola I I loved her curiosity her genuine curiosity it's so humbling like you know she asks questions she really gives a damn So I'll always try to live out the questions and like ask the questions. I felt like validated in that because I asked questions. I 
her presence, just like she was deeply present with, you know, with who she's just present with you. She's looking at you, you know, like she's right there with you. Mm-hmm. With Chadwick, I feel the gift of Chadwick is I continue to learn more and more about him. He just, I, and it, I just, when I think of him, I just feel so much pride and joy and sadness also. And the processing is just, wow, like you did it. You know, like we all, we, we aren't all, we're not going to live forever in these bodies We're I think we're eternal and we graduate from this classroom, but touch who you're supposed to touch and touch them in a real way. You know, like he also made it like he was very as present as he could be. I felt like he really, with our scenes, he handled them with care and asked me how I felt and asked if he could put his hand here. So, you know, and I was like, do what Levy would do. And he, it was just annoying. And I just, I hope I can just touch who I'm supposed to touch and leave them feeling like they have the keys to their own door also. And I felt Mm. like he did that. That's lovely. That's a lovely (laughs) gift for, for a young actress to feel that I have to say. Really? It really is. Um, All right. So I want to, I want to take it back a little bit here, Taylor, because you're a dancer. I don't know how many of our listeners know that, but you, you have the discipline of a dancer. Obviously you've done it since you were a kid, right? Yes. Yes, I have. So just tell me a little bit about your childhood as a dancer living Mm -hmm. in LA. Yeah. So I, my, actually my mom's best friend who actually passed away from breast cancer she was, she was on Broadway. She was an actress. She was the mother on my brother and me. Her name is Karen Fraction. I remember that's one summer I was there. Karen's like, you know, Debbie Allen's opening a, a, a dance studio in Culver City. And so I auditioned. I remember begging my mom to audition. I couldn't even do the splits. Like I, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any real technical training, but I auditioned and then I got into the academy and was on scholarship and she truly changed my life. Like she took me, I don't know what she saw. I can't even imagine how wild I was then, but she took me to Italy with her. She took me to the, I did went to the Kennedy center with her for three months. I went to, we did this Mississippi rising benefit when there was, when the, when hurricane Katrina hit, like Debbie Allen really took me and exposed me. And, you know, she had me read Uta Hogg and respect for acting. She had me, you know, she just, she saw something and I stuck with it. And yeah, every day was we get out of school and then I go to dance from four to 8 PM. It would be ballet, jazz, hip hop, tap, flamenco, salsa, Dunham. She had us learn everything. Wow. I think about how many lives and you talk about it earlier, souls that Debbie, <laughs> Debbie Allen has touched. I mean, Oh my gosh, that woman, whoo, she's getting it all and doing it all and Mm. giving it all. Yeah. And that kind of discipline, I think that dance teaches you and that rigor, I think is really beneficial as an actor because just absolutely being in your body, right. And and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, having a tolerance for discomfort and movement. Definitely. And I've had, and I can't, I have, I have to be honest too. I've had to undo some of the dance because some of it can be quite unhealthy. It's like trying to achieve perfectionism. And like, I remember being a kid and sleeping in the splits because I wanted my hips to be wide, like open more. And, you know, ballet can get, I went to the Kirov Ballet Academy for two summers and 
dance with complexions in New York for two summers. And you're, as you're auditioning for your personality as a kid, I had some tough family stuff at home. Like I put all my energy into trying to be perfect, like black swan and not quite like that, but I had to really balance that out because first of all, like perfect is boring. Like I love asymmetry. I'm happy for the discipline. Yes. When I need to, you know, study my lines or I want to like do the work and be really extra about the way that I walk and the way that I talk and even my character's astrology sign. Like I love the care and consideration that I do put into the process when I'm creating a character, but I've also had to like sometimes get off the subject because I find that I flow, <laughs> I slow it down, uh-huh. you know, like I just, it's like, who, what are you doing this for? Some of this is just your ego, you know, like that's accustomed to suffering or, you know, that identifies with like, oh, I have to suffer in order to like, I don't, who wants that all the time? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's a funny way to put it, but very, uh, very accurate. Mm-hmm. Very accurate. Well, I'm I I can be very jealous of coordination because I'm not coordinated and and <laughs> I see that you were a Laker girl and that would be like my dream if I could have a fantasy like to go be a Laker girl for a season. Really? Oh my god, I would love to be able wow. to dance and move and have any kind of rhythm. <laughs> but what I think is really interesting is that you had a lot of um, hurdles, yeah. you know nothing was taken for granted for you. I mean, I know you you said you've worked a lot of jobs. You were on scholarship. You had some Mm -hmm. tough stuff you had to deal with as a kid. Yeah. You know, even traveling with Debbie Allen is God of, obviously that's a privilege, but that brings its own challenges. Totally. So yeah. What do you think it is about your innate character that has allowed you to thrive despite these challenges? Oh man, I think, um, well now I think my, my perspective, I think it's all been perspective and also just, I find that contrast really does create clarity and it's all almost like opportunities to love yourself and those around you. But like, I'm so thankful because I think everyone on this planet has some kind of curriculum. Like, I feel like if you're alive, you're here to learn. I think I just man, just doing so much reading and work and from like Ram Dass to Abraham Hicks to like, I mean, I grew up super Catholic, so there was discipline there. I mean, that's not something I necessarily subscribe to, but I even like, yeah, Jesus was a radically cool, loving man. Like whoever, you know, Buddha, all of them, Krishna, you read all these people and it's like somehow like their gurus were adversity. And somehow being able to transmute the bullshit into like, people don't know what they're doing. That's why they do what they do. If they knew what they were doing. They do better. So like, how could I be the change that I wish to be or see? That's just extended out into why I guess I want to be an actor. And I guess one, like eventually maybe it'll turn into culinary school or maybe it'll turn. I just want to be colorful, live a colorful life. I'm not really... I just feel like now that I've, I've learned how to give it up a little bit more, like get off the subject and give it up. And I feel like the more I give it up, the more I relax, the more I trust and the more I trust, the more I'm like in tune with love that's in me and with others. And I just find myself in these situations that are like, oh, wow. Yes, of course. Exactly. That's why I'm here. Oh, 
No wonder I didn't get that part. Oh, okay. Rejection's protection because if I had done that, then I wouldn't be able to it just all you're like, damn, it's all a prayer. Wow. Rejection is protection. I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a great POV actually. Yeah. Can we talk about Jonathan Majors for a second? Oh my gosh. Of course we can. <laughs> that talented young man. <laughs> right. Because when I was talking to him, he we had discussed how you have this like light, like this fire, this thing that just comes on screen. And I, I wondered, I kind of couldn't wait to talk to you about him to get your perspective on what it was like and what you were seeing when you two worked together on White Boy Rick. Oh, yeah. He's like, to me, in the way that I felt about Chadwick, he's like, I felt like he's both young and old in a body, you know, like perspective and wisdom of an old man, but like young in that he's malleable and open and like wants to get it right. It's so funny. I, I was so intimidated by him when I first met him. And then we became really close. Like we went to the museum on our day off, this beautiful museum in Cleveland. And he's just like, he just makes me feel so hopeful about storytelling. And, you know, cause we grew up with Robert De Niro and Scorsese and Al Pacino mm-hmm. and Merrill and, you know, Viola, all of that, like, you know, Sydney, C- Sicily, like, I mean, I could go on and on. It's not even about that. It's just, I feel like he's up there, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like what I can see in them, that must exist in me too, if I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Taylor, it's been an absolute pleasure. And like I said, I look forward to um, seeing everything you do because you were just so good in Ma Rainey. And- thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Of course. I absolutely loved talking to Taylor Page. I I was obsessed with her. I am obsessed with her. I, I, I saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and I just was like, who is that? She was the one actor in the ensemble that I didn't know who she was. And I was like, that face, the way she moved, you know, the, the push and pull that she has between Ma and Levy, Chadwick's character and... and and Viola was just incredible. She held her own with these two legends. And I was just impressed. I remember staying and watching the credits specifically just so I could get her name. And I love that there was a, a you and Taylor. I was like, okay, this one, this one's something. And then getting to know her was even better than anticipated. It's, it's not surprising to me that she came up through Debbie Allen's dance program because it takes such an amount of discipline. And I also I often find that that actors that have been former athletes, and by dancing, I mean that is that is very athletic, but just someone that has that rigor and discipline and has achieved something and knows how much you have to compromise and how much you have to work to get what you want, I think always in the end makes for a better actor. I'm so excited for her. At the end of all my conversations, I like to ask whomever I'm interviewing what advice they have for the next generation. And as we near the end of this episode, I'd like to leave you with what Jonathan Majors had to say on the subject. 
wherever you are, you're okay. You're right where you need to be. I would say continue in that direction. When you come against obstacles, move with the obstacle because it'll make you stronger. And then I would say once you're on track, when you feel you're on track, read, 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 and ignore everybody. Read, 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 and ignore everybody. I'm not an actor, but I love it, and I'm going to take his advice. That's our show. I'd like to thank Jonathan, Taylor, and Yaya for their time. And I'd like to thank you for listening. To watch these actors, you can stream The Get Down to Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and The Trial of Chicago 7 on Netflix. For more, head over to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQueUE.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. More Like This is produced by Netflix in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Noah Eberhardt, Jazzy Johnson, Erica Wong, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King. Listen in next time for More Like This.